Today we are wrapping up our Unrestrained series. So we've spent the last month and a half walking our way through the book of Colossians and uh, staring into this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, which primarily wrestles with this question, is Jesus enough? And so if you've missed any of the messages or if you want to catch up on where we've come from, you can listen to our podcast, you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page and uh, listen to all of those. Um, but as we've said all the way through, Paul's been asking this question, is Jesus enough or do we have to bring in other religious practices, other philosophies, other different bits and pieces in order to be made right with God or to live lives the way that we're supposed to live? And Paul's answer to that question, is Jesus enough, is yes and then some. And so we spent quite a bit of time in the first few weeks unpacking who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And we recognize that Jesus is the one who comes to show us exactly what God is like in all of God's fullness. It all comes to dwell, to live within the human body of Jesus. Jesus is the one who creates and holds everything together. Jesus is the one where we find our place and where the whole universe gets stitched together. Jesus is the head of the church and the heart of the church. So Jesus is the one who gives us direction as the church, but Jesus is also the one who gives us life as a church. And Jesus is the one who gives us peace with God. Ultimately, Jesus comes to do everything necessary for us to be friends with God, to be welcomed into God's family. So then we've kind of shifted gear and talked about what are the implications of that? What does that mean for us? And so we've talked about how our old selves have been buried with Jesus. The way that we live our lives that's focused on selfishness and what's best for me, all of those things are gone because of what Jesus has done. They died with Jesus and instead we're raised to life with Jesus. And so we're now raised to life to live the way that Jesus wants us to be able to live. Paul talked about this idea of being moved from darkness to light, that we're not stumbling around in fear, not sure where we are, but now we can see things as they're supposed to be and we can see the way forward. And we also talked about how Jesus allows us to be seen as pure and faultless and without accusation. That's how God now sees every single one of us because Jesus lives in us. So that's what we've unpacked over the last few weeks. And then last week we got into some practical outcomes of that and specifically what does it mean to live unrestrained lives. And we talked about last week some things that we can do, so things to get rid of in our lives and things that we can put emphasis on. And today as we finish up, Paul turns his attention outwards to say, well, what are the implications of all of this stuff on our relationships, on the way that we interact with a whole bunch of different people around us? So a couple of caveats before we jump into what Paul has got to say here. The first is this, not everything that we're going to talk about today is relevant to everyone's experience. So Paul is going to talk about marriage relationships, Paul's going to talk about parenting relationships, Paul's going to talk about relationships in a work context and relationships with other people. So at a minimum, everyone is in relationships with other people. So there's something in this for everyone. But my encouragement would be not just to tune out for the bits where it's like, well, I'm not married, so that bit's not relevant to me, or I don't have kids, or I don't have kids that are around anymore, so that's not relevant to me. There are amazing principles that we can take away from all of these different things in the other relationships that we have. So whether that is relationships with close friends, whether that's relationships with our siblings, whether that's relationships with nieces and nephews, whatever it might be, there's a whole bunch of principles that we can take away as we go through. 
And the other thing is the same thing that I have said a number of times throughout this series. This is not another list of do's and don'ts that we have to adhere to to in order to be made right with God. The danger with all these things that Paul unpacks is that we start to drift back to say, oh, well, I have to do this, and if I don't, then God's not going to like me anymore or God's going to turn his back on me. We have to remember everything that Paul has said, the context in which all of this happens, which is... Everything that's necessary has been done. So live in the freedom that comes out of that and experience what unrestrained relationships are supposed to look like. So as always, inside of Care and Connection, you've got your teaching notes. So if you want to jot things down as we go through, uh, you can feel free to do that. So we begin by talking about relationships with our spouses, so marriage relationships and what that looks like. So Paul says, and we're going to jump right in at the deep end here with uh, some of the most controversial verses that Paul says that have caused a little bit of a stir in the church at different times over the years. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, for that is what you should do as Christians. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So as I said, this first verse, 18, has been a little bit controversial and sadly has been manipulated and abused in a lot of places for centuries through the church because of misunderstandings about what Paul is and is not saying here. And this is one of these times when it's so, so super important for us not just to look at one verse, but to look at the whole context of what we've been talking about, but even more than that, to look at where else this verse occurs so that we can make sure we're understanding it the way that it was originally communicated. Because when we talk about this idea of submission, for some of us, that gives an instant reaction. I'm not submitting to anyone. Don't tell me what to do. Thank you very much. I'm not interested in what you've got to say. But this word submission or submitting that was used throughout scripture is really about unselfish service. The idea of submission is saying I'm going to let go of my selfish needs, turn my attention to other people and think about how I can serve them. And submission was not just a word that Paul uses in this verse. This was something that the early church adopted as a core value that anyone who was following Jesus should think about in every single relationship that they had. If you want to follow Jesus, then serve other people unselfishly. It's as simple as that. So there's a parallel passage where Paul says some very similar things to what he says in Colossians, but expands on it a little bit more, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians 5, 21 and 22, Paul writes this, "'Submit yourselves to one another because of your reverence for Christ.'" And then he says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord.'" So, again, put that into context, Paul's starting by saying, every one of you, if you're following Jesus, should submit to one another, unselfishly serve each other. Oh, and by the way, if you're married, then if you're a wife, you should submit to your husband, which should go without saying, but there was obviously some stuff going on where Paul felt like he needed to single that out, particularly to say, in your marriage relationships unselfishly serve your husbands, the same as you would serve everybody else as you follow Jesus. Seems like husbands get off easy though. So wives are challenged to say, do that. But Paul says, husbands, love your wives. So is that easier? He also says, well, don't be harsh, which means don't be bitter or get exasperated with them or treat them unfairly. But again, when we look at the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. So far from this being an easier thing, where we say, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, you just got to love your wives and everything will be fine. Paul says, love your wives in the way that Jesus loves the church. And how deeply does Jesus love the church? Enough that he was willing to die for it. Which, again, is about unselfishly serving. Self-sacrificial love is what we see in Jesus. And I'm sure that there are times when Jesus gets very frustrated with his bride, with the church, that we don't do the things that we know we should be doing as we follow Jesus together. But does Jesus ever get harsh with the church? Is Jesus ever bitter about the church, get exasperated, treat us unfairly? No, he loves us passionately. And so for those of us who are husbands, that's the challenge, is to say, how do we love our wives in the way that Jesus loves the church? So really what Paul is saying is in marriage relationships, our focus should simply be this, others-centred, self-sacrificial service and love, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife. And in actual fact, it's as simple as this. Treat your husband and your wife with the same level of self-sacrificial service that you would treat other people. And I think that's the big challenge for us, is that in our close relationships, particularly in our marriages, at times we can easily take each other for granted. And we can say things that we really don't mean, or we can say things in a tone that we really don't mean, certainly in a way that we would never speak to anybody else. And so the challenge in our marriage relationships is to say, am I serving this person the same as I'm serving the other people that Jesus calls me to serve as I follow him? Paul then continues and unpacks further in terms of family relationships and talks about relationships between parents and kids. So in verse 20, Paul says this, Children, it's your Christian duty to obey your parents always, for that is what pleases God. Parents, do not irritate your children, or they will become discouraged. So again, this can easily be one of those things, and uh, all of our kids are out getting ready for next week, obviously, but if they were in here, particularly some of our teenagers, they might feel a little challenged about this. What do you mean, obey my parents? You mean I have to do what they tell me to do? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. As if that could be possible. The challenge here is, again, to recognise the context in which Paul says this. And he uses the same words that are used in our obedience to our Heavenly Father. That we should obey our parents the same way as we should obey our Heavenly Parent, our Heavenly Father. But it's probably more helpful to start from the other way and challenge ourselves as parents first to say... Don't irritate your children, which can be understood as like irritating, as in be annoying, but is probably more accurately understood as being unjust or overly severe or being too harsh. Because if we do that, then our kids will become discouraged. Literally, their courage will be taken away. Other translations talk about kids becoming disheartened or dispirited or broken-spirited. And we all understand that that's the reality of what happens. When parents can be too harsh, too irritating with their kids, that can take away their courage. That can take away their heart to explore what life is all supposed to be about. So the challenge for those of us who are parents is to say, are we creating an environment where our kids feel secure enough to want to obey us? 
Or are we taking away their courage, taking away their spirit, which causes a whole bunch of other issues? We all know that if we're in an environment where we're loved, where we're cared for, where we feel secure, it's a lot easier for us to explore things the right way. If, on the other hand, we're in a place where we don't feel secure, where we don't feel loved, where we don't feel cared for, that's where things generally go off the rails in a whole bunch of different ways. And this is important because of what we've talked about a number of times when we've talked about the fatherhood of God, particularly when we talked about it on Father's Day, to recognise that we can easily project our image of what our earthly dads is like onto God and say, well, I'm not obeying God. Don't be ridiculous. Because if God's like my earthly dad, no way. I don't feel loved. I don't feel secure. I don't feel cared for. But if we understand that God is our perfect heavenly father, who loves us completely, who has done everything necessary for us through Jesus to welcome us into his family, a place where we feel loved and secure and cared for, then that should make us want to obey our Heavenly Father. And then we take that and apply that into our parenting relationships as well. So a couple of comments about these things, because Paul gets a pretty harsh rap based on what he's saying in these few verses. So we need to be really, really clear. Paul is not, as he has been accused of by many people, being sexist, putting women down, or telling kids to just be quiet and keep out of the way, or do what you're told and don't talk back. This, again, is why it's so important for us to recognise the original context and the original culture in which Paul is writing. The environment in which Paul is writing is into a context where women were seen as things, as possessions. If you had a wife, they were effectively someone that was your possession and someone that was yours to tell them what to do. Children were seen as pretty much completely worthless. They have no value whatsoever until they finally grow up and start contributing to society. Outside of that, they're really not much use whatsoever. So think about that context, that understanding of how people are perceived and look at what Paul is saying here. He is pushing the boundaries as far as he possibly can. He's saying, women, you are completely worthy. You are worthwhile. In fact, you should see yourselves in a place of equality the same as everyone else who's following Jesus. It's as simple as that. In your marriage relationship, treat people the same as you would treat the rest of God's family. So bring yourselves up to that. Don't see yourselves as lower class and I can't do these things. Be willing to offer self-sacrificial service the same as you would serve other people. And for kids, Paul's trying to raise the standard of understanding that kids, you have a role to play. So step up into that. Obey your parents and live out what it means to follow Jesus. But he's also challenging husbands to say, don't try and treat your wife like they're some possession that you've got. Love them self-sacrificially. Come underneath them like Jesus comes and serves the church. And parents, don't just treat your kids like they're nothing. Try and create an environment of security and an environment where they can grow into what they need to be. We've got to remember, there's no marriage books around at this point in time. There's no parenting courses that you can do to try and understand how you're supposed to do your family. What Paul is saying is so far ahead of everyone else in culture. And he is being radical in what he's challenging here. 
He's talked all the way through about this reality of equality. And we're going to come back to that as we continue through. But Paul really wants to challenge the people that he's writing to, but us as well, to say family is this place where we should experience what life is supposed to be like. Family is a place where in our marriage relationships, in our parenting relationships, we should experience the freedom that we've been given that then motivates us to follow Jesus the way that we've been created to live. That's not the only place, obviously, where we get to experience that. That's why we talk about our church as spiritual family as well for those who don't have that family sense. But for those of us who are in those relationships, Paul really wants to challenge us around that. So Paul then continues on with some other things that he also has been challenged about significantly over the centuries. He says in verse 22, Slaves, obey your human masters in all things, not only when they're watching you because you want to gain their approval, but do it with a sincere heart because of your reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. Remember that the Lord will give you as a reward what he has kept for his people. For Christ is the real master that you serve, and all wrongdoers will be repaid for the wrong things that they do, because God judges everyone by the same standard. Masters, be fair and just in the way that you treat your slaves. Remember that you too have a master in heaven. So again, controversial verses, because is Paul condoning slavery, which he's been accused of because of this? Shouldn't Paul have been saying we should get away from slavery altogether? Again, we've got to listen to what Paul is really saying here because he is pushing the envelope as far as he possibly can. In verse 24, Paul says, The Lord will give you, saying this to slaves, as a reward what he's kept for his people. And what he's saying there is you're going to receive an inheritance, which if you're a slave, that is not a thing. If you're a slave, you're not entitled to any inheritance from anyone. If someone dies, you're not getting anything from them because you're a slave. And Paul is saying, no, no, you're going to get an inheritance. That's radical. But not only that, but Paul says, you're not just going to get any inheritance. You're going to get the same inheritance as everybody else who follows Jesus. Being welcomed into God's family, being given full access, being given eternal life. All of those things, you're getting the same as everybody else. So for someone who's in a slave capacity, that is radical. Because you are used to being treated as completely worthless and useless. And Paul's saying, no, no, you're the same as everybody else. He then challenges masters to be fair and just. To not just do the bare minimum, but to be fair and equitable. He's literally saying, treat slaves the same as you would treat everybody else. Don't see them as your possessions. Don't see them as worthless, as useless. Treat them the same as you would treat all of the others. So Paul couldn't necessarily challenge to do away with slavery in the culture that he was in. Maybe he could have, but he certainly goes as close as he possibly can to say, if you do have that sort of relationship in your household or in your workplace, then the way that you need to treat each other is as if that doesn't exist. Get rid of the power dynamic altogether and say, equality. We're all the same because of Jesus. He's been saying that all the way through this letter. There is no more slave or free or Jew or non-Jew or male or female. All of those things are gone. So Paul's trying to get radical equality to kick in. 
So how is this helpful for us? Well, I think it's useful for us to think about it in the context of our work relationships. And whether that's work in a paid capacity or whether that's in a volunteer capacity, I think it's helpful for us to recognise what is our mindset as we go into working or volunteering. Paul really challenges people to say, don't just go into it muttering and complaining and begrudgingly saying, oh, I suppose I'll have to do this and I don't really want to be here. But instead, he says, pretend that you're working for Jesus because that's what you're actually doing. When you go to work, when you're volunteering somewhere, don't imagine that you're working for someone else. Understand that you are working for Jesus. And so have the same attitude that you would have if Jesus was your boss. And if you're someone who's in a leadership capacity, whether that's because you've got employees or because you oversee a team in a volunteer capacity, same challenge. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Treat everyone with equality. This radical inclusiveness that Paul pushes out into our work and volunteer relationships as well. And then finally, Paul turns even further out to say, well, what about relationships with the other people around us? In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Be persistent in prayer and keep alert as you pray, giving thanks to God. At the same time, pray also for us so that God will give us a good opportunity to preach his message about the secret of Christ. For that's why I'm now in prison. Pray then that I may speak as I should in such a way as to make it clear. Be wise in the way that you act towards those who are not believers, making good use of every opportunity you have. Your speech should always be pleasant and interesting, and you should know how to give the right answer to everyone. So it seems like Paul kind of diverts off here. He's been talking about all these relationships, and then all of a sudden he says, be persistent in prayer. Keep persevering in prayer. Where did that come from? What Paul is reminding us is that prayer is not this religious practice that we have to do in order to make God think good things about us. It's not this box that we tick every day to say, yes, well, I've prayed, so that's good. Paul's reminding us that prayer has the power to change the way that we look at the world around us and particularly the way that we look at the relationships that we have. So Paul says, persevere in prayer. Keep going back and spending time with God so that you can understand the way that he sees people, the way that he sees the relationships that you've got, the opportunities that he puts in front of you. And then he specifically says, be wise in how you act towards those who are non-believers. So as we interact with people who don't follow Jesus, we need to think about the way that we're acting, not just what we're saying, but what are our actions conveying? What message are we sending across to them? Do our interactions with other people carry across everything that we've talked about through this series and everything that we believe? Do our actions show that we have been freed up to live unrestrained lives? In particular, Paul says, let your speech be pleasant and interesting, which sadly is a very watered-down version of what those words mean in the translation that we've got. Other translations say things like, let your speech be full of grace. Let it be seasoned with salt. Let it be gracious and attractive, which is far more helpful for us to understand, particularly that analogy of letting things be seasoned with salt. We don't season things with salt so that we can taste the salt. Well, some people do, but most of us don't. Generally, we season things with salt to bring out the flavours in whatever it is that we're seasoning. 
So, in our conversations with others, are we bringing out the God flavours, as other translations say, in the relationships that we've got, in what's happening in someone else's life, in the conversations that we have? Are we allowing the God flavours to come to the surface so that they're really, really obvious? Are our conversations gracious and grace-filled? Not just in what we say, but in the way that we say it, and probably even more importantly, in the way that those words are received by someone else. And then Paul says that we need to give the right answer to everyone, which sounds a little challenging. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I have to know every answer to everyone that anyone's ever going to ask me? Well, no. The actual translation of this is probably better as give the right answer to each one being able to recognise that each person is different and each person comes from a different perspective. So our focus is not trying to have a one-size-fits-all answer to everybody, but to be able to, again, recognise that when we flavour something with salt, we're bringing out the flavours in that individual type of food. So when you flavour a steak, that brings out certain flavours. When you flavour a roast capsicum, that brings out completely different flavours. And in our conversations and in our relationships with other people, we need to be doing the same thing, treating each person as an individual and saying, what is God up to in this person's life? What is God up to in our relationship, in this conversation? And how do I allow those things to come to the surface? So as we wrap up today, question for us to reflect on. What relationships, which relationships can I invest in more deeply this week? As I think about all of those different relationships, is there one that kind of spikes for me a little bit? For those of us who are married, is there something that I'm feeling challenged about, about what it looks like to self-sacrificially love my spouse in terms of the way that I interact with them, in terms of the way that I speak to them, in terms of the things that I do for them? Is there something there? For those of us who have kids, is there something for us there in terms of creating an environment that is healthy for them? For kids, is there something, even those of us who are a bit older and have parents who are around, is there something in respectfully obeying our parents and looking at them the same way as we look at our Heavenly Father that we can take away? For those of us going into a work context, and again, whether that's into a paid work context or something we're volunteering in this week, Is there something that we can be doing in our attitude to recognise how do I serve Jesus as I go into this week? And then as we think about the relationships with other people around us, what does it look like for me to sprinkle a little bit of salt and to be able to allow those flavours to come out in my relationships with my neighbours, with my friends, perhaps even with someone who's a part of my family? So is there one relationship that you can think of as we head into this week that would be helpful to just lean into a little bit and say, what does it look like for me to self-sacrificially love and serve this person as I head into this week? And then as we wrap up this series all together, the question that I want to leave us with is simply this. Are we living out of the freedom that we've been given? There's something in our Western culture that drives us to feel like we have to achieve things for ourselves. It's baked into who we are. And so we always feel a little bit uncomfortable when someone does something for us with no implication about us needing to do something in return. And we project that easily into our relationship with God. We find it very hard to accept that God loves us as we are right now today. 
There's nothing that we need to do or can do today or this week to earn God's love or earn God's favour any more than we've already got it. Jesus has done everything that's necessary for us to live out of that freedom. So as we move into this week and as we move on from this series, as we move and turn our attention towards Christmas, is my focus on saying thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for this unbelievable gift that you have given me. Or is there a part of me that's still trying to work, still trying to earn something that's already been given to me? And so how can I hold on to that sense of unrestrained freedom that has been gifted to me and live out of what comes out of that instead of trying to earn it? So I'm going to pray that we can continue to feel inspired and encouraged about what that looks like as we then head out into this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this amazing letter that Paul wrote that is filled with so much stuff. We could spend more and more weeks unpacking the truths that are within the things that he's said here. But we thank you for this theme that has just kicked in through all of the weeks, this reality that, Jesus, you've done everything that's necessary to show us what God is like, to hold the universe together, to help us to find a place where we find our purpose You've done everything necessary for us to have a full, complete relationship with God right now. You've given us every opportunity to live life the way that we were created to live. And that is staggering. That's amazing that you have done all of that for us. And we're sorry that at times we either take that for granted and we forget how much freedom we've given or that we resort back to feeling like we have to do all of these things in order to make up for what you've done for us or in order to try and earn something that you've already given. So my prayer as we wrap up this series is that you would seal that in our hearts and our minds, that truth that everything's been done. You've given us freedom to be able to live how we're supposed to live. And so now we can do all of that. We don't have to, but we have the opportunity to choose it and to lean into what you have given us the ability to live. So for each one of us, we're in different places. And so I thank you that you know what's going on in our lives. You know the struggles that we're facing. You know the ways in which we find it hard to accept that. You know the battles that we wade into. You know the difficult relationships that we're facing as we head into this week. And my prayer is simply that you would help us to get up every day with a sense of anticipation about what it looks like to live as your people And then out of that, to serve people in the way that, Jesus, we know you came to serve us. So we thank you for all that you've done for us and ask that you would help us to continue to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.